Steve with Life Worth Living. God wants to use five things to change you into the best version of you. Number one, he wants you to learn from him. Number two, he wants you to love him. Number three, he wants you to show love to others. Number four, he wants you to tell other people about him. And number five, he wants you to live your life surrounded by the positive influence of other Christians. These five purposes will cause you to ever improve and become the person of your wildest dreams. You know, we've been talking about uh, setting goals, spiritual goals, being a purpose-driven group of people, uh, purpose-driven church, purpose-driven Christians. And let me just uh, summarize, if I could, from Acts 2, verses 42 through 47, which has has basically been our anchor scripture for the month of of January. And I'll read it to you, Acts 2, verses 42 through 47. It speaks of the early church right after the Holy Spirit was poured out on them, of what they did, what their five purposes were. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, In other words, they devoted themselves to learning more about God and being taught more about God. We have to be teachable. And to fellowship, that is to breaking of bread. So their purpose was to have a sense of belonging uh, with with the body of Christ and the church. Um, We belong to each other. When we belong to Jesus, we belong to his body as well. And they also devoted themselves to prayer. And we're going to see down in verse 47, they praised God. So a third purpose that they had uh, was that of worship, of loving God. People who say, I have a hard time praying, and that's me, by the way. (laughs) It means sometimes we have a hard time expressing our love to the Lord. But when we love Jesus, prayer and praise and worship and expressing love to God is going to be very natural and very easy, and we won't be easily distracted. It goes on in verse 43, Everyone was filled with awe as many wonders and signs performed were performed by the apostles, and all the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold their property and possessions to give to everyone in need. And here's the fourth purpose that we see, and that is of showing love to each other of expressing love. It's easy to say you love somebody, but what's hard is to show that you love somebody, to demonstrate it, to give them your time, to give them your emotions, to give them your possessions or your money to to help them. So that's the fourth one is to serve, to show love. And then in verse 46, every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together. There's that fellowship component again. With glad and sincere hearts, they praised God and enjoyed the favor of all the people. And look at this. Here's the fifth one. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So the fifth purpose here is that of telling people who Jesus is to you and what Jesus has done for you. In other words, being an evangelist. That scares the pants off of some of us. And others, it it motivates us and it gets us excited. So here, there are those five purposes. To learn, to belong, 
to love God, to show love to people, and to help rescue people that are perishing. So, you know, why, if you ask the question to each of these, uh, each of these purposes, why do I want to learn? I want to change. I want to be a different and better person. Why do I belong to the family of God? Because it changes me. It changes who I am. It changes how I, I think, how I operate. It changes my attitudes when I belong to the family of God. Why do I love God? Because I want to change. I want Him to change me, and His love changes people. When you love God and you're loved by God, you change. Why would I show love to people? Because I want them to change. I want them to be helped. I want them to be transformed by the love of God. And, and lastly, why would I rescue somebody? Why would I go share the love of Jesus with people and tell them who Jesus is? Because they need to change. Because it helps them. It's going gonna, it's gonna to make them, God is going to make us and them the best version of who we were intended to be. And I'm not that person quite yet. I want to be changed or transformed by God. So God's ultimate purpose is to change you and me into the best versions of ourselves, the best version of ourselves. If I'm an addict, I want to be changed into a free person. If my life is out of control, I want to be changed into a self-controlled person. If I struggle with anger and hatred, I want to be changed into a loving, kind, gentle person. If I, if I have lust, I want to ch be changed into a loving person instead of a lustful person. I want to be changed from an evil person to a good person, a lazy person into a hardworking person, a self-centered person into a God-centered and people-centered person. You see, I want to change from being obsessed to being relaxed, from being distracted to being focused, from being sick to being pain-free and whole, from being disturbed to being peaceful, from being abused to being safe and saved, from pro poverty to abundance, from hopelessness to purposefulness, from being a control freak to being chilled down and flexible. See, I want God to change me. That's, what, that's the business that God is in, is changing people's lives. So, if God has the purpose of changing us for the better, then we should embrace that same purpose as well and saying, I want to be changed for the better. And you know what? I don't want it to stop there. I want to help other people be changed for the better as well. So, that leads to our goal that we were toying with over the last several weeks. How many people's lives do we at Life Worth Living Church want to see change this year? And we talked, I think it was two weeks ago now, about purposeful faith goals. So if I throw out that our church of 50 or 60 folks wants to see 20 people's lives change, well, that's a purposeful goal, but it's not very faith-filled. And so we, we talked about it on Wednesday night and uh, threw out some numbers and came up with a purposeful faith goal. And I'm going to see, see if everybody stays in their chairs when we mention it. But we want 
to see a thousand people's lives changed in 2022. Now that's going to take the power of God. That's not going to be us. Now we're going to participate in it. We're going to be part of that, that goal. But man, we're going to have to pray our heads off to see that one happen. And we're going to talk more ex- exactly about how we're going to count these and how we're going to keep track of this. Because if you set a goal, you have to be able to measure it to see if you can accom- if you accomplish it and what progress you're making towards it. So we'll talk more about that in the coming week or two about how we're going to track that. But that's the goal. That's the purposeful faith goal is we want to see a thousand people's lives changed. Sick people healed. Depressed people made joyful. Lost people saved. You get the picture. So we're going to talk about these five purposes in a little bit more depth today. Give some really good, solid, pertinent examples, and and see what resonates with each one of us. See, each one of us has a tendency towards one or two of these purposes more than the remainder of them, and that's okay. God made us that way so that we can shore up each other's strengths and weaknesses. You know, we can shoulder to shoulder, we can accomplish a lot more than if we tried to do these things individually. And so which one of these grips your heart? Is it discipleship? That's learning more about Jesus. Is it fellowship? You know, the the sense of belonging that you love to make people feel belong, like they belong in the family of God. Is it loving God and sharing God's love through worship and praise and prayer? Is it receiving God's love and then turning around and showing it to other people? Is it rescuing the helpless? So, so let's, let's look at some examples so that it's not just words on a page, but it means something to us. Let's look at this first one. To learn and to teach. That's, that's discipleship. Jesus called his disciples to follow him. And let me tell you what, those 12 men learned more in three years than they did in a lifetime because they were disciples of Jesus. They followed his example. Here's what a person who tends to be a disciple and a discipler looks like. Listen to this. As soon as God shows you something, you want to find a thirsty soul, and you want to show it to them. You want to see that person grow and thrive and enjoy the new discovery of that truth that you're so much enjoying. That's what a discipler looks like, and that's what a disciple looks like. You like to see people grow and improve, and you see yourself as a developer of people, both spiritually, personally, and even professionally. You like to develop people. It it gives you a sense of accomplishment and fulfillment when you see people grow. You appreciate the uniqueness of people and what motivates them, what makes them tick. You like looking and figuring out what what helps people push past their limitations. As you grow yourself as a mentor, you learn that people learn best through analyzing their own experiences. So you're not a teacher that's going to jabber for two hours straight, like I'm doing right now. (laughs) But you like to see people learn for themselves and foster that environment of learning. So some key descriptive words... That, that might come to mind for you is coach, teacher, mentor, discipler. 
And I want to give you an example of somebody that probably everybody on the line here knows this person, and it's my mom. Um, growing up, every time my mom learned something, she was teaching me about it. <laughs> she couldn't help herself. And, and to this day, many of us, if not all of us, get her messages of things that she's learned in the Bible, that she, she walks around the church handing out those messages because she's a discipler. She likes to learn, and then she immediately likes to turn around and teach. I'll tell you what, that's something that's strong in my mom. That purpose of learning, of teaching, of discipleship is something that my mom is very, very good at and God has gifted her with. But let me give you an example from somebody in the Bible. King David, if you remember King David, he's the guy that took down Goliath before he was king. Many other incredible stories, both good and bad, about King David. But King David was a learner teacher. He couldn't help himself. And King David, one of his sons, who actually succeeded him as king, was Solomon. And we find when we read Solomon's writings that his dad's fingerprints are all over what he wrote. In Proverbs 4, Solomon begins to talk about the impact that his dad had on his life. And I'm not going to read all of it, but you look at verse 3 of Proverbs 4. Solomon has this vivid memory of his dad and his mom. <laughs> it says, For I too was a son to my father, still tender and cherished by my mother. He taught me, and he said to me, Hold on to my words with all your heart. Keep my commands, and you will live. Get wisdom and understanding, King David told his young, his young child Solomon. And many years later, God, his true father, asked him, Solomon, what do you want? And Solomon said, I want wisdom. Why? Because his dad had discipled him to know what he wanted in life. His dad saw the uniqueness in Solomon. I'm not going to read all of uh, of Proverbs 4. It'll be on your text reading for this week. But I do want to skip over to Proverbs 22.6, another writing of Solomon, interestingly enough. And I'm going to read from the Darby translation of the Bible. But it says, Train up the child according to the tenor of his way, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. And that's exactly what King David the discipler did with his son. He realized this boy has wisdom, and I want to foster and develop that in him. And eventually, that's what Solomon was known for, was his wisdom. So, many of us have this gifting, this drive, this desire for discipleship. I'll tell you what, if God has put that in you, God wants to use it for you to reach part of those thousand lives this year through discipleship. You're going to be a part of this. But let's look at the second purpose that we mentioned this morning. It's to belong and to make others feel like they belong, i.e. fellowship. All right? What does a person who loves fellowship look like? Well, it drives you crazy to think that people feel excluded. You don't like to see people on the fringe. You want to draw them in. You want to make them feel warm. You want to make them feel accepted. You invite people into the warmth of your home sometimes. 
Generally, you're a good listener and you have strong social IQ. In other words, you have good or at least decent people skills. You're sensitive to people's emotional needs. You host parties sometimes and get-togethers, and you like to have a good time. You like to have people feel comfortable and enjoy themselves and let their guard down. Often, you're an encourager, and many people like this are good listeners as well. Key words that would describe you as host, family, friend, belonging. And I think of someone in our church who who very much epitomizes this to me is Sister Doris. You get around Sister Doris and you just feel comfortable. You feel warm. You feel loved. You feel like you're a part of something. And um and that that that's she she reminds me of this, but I'll tell you of another person that probably many of us don't know, but there's this lady that uh my family referred referred to as Aunt Bertha. And Aunt Bertha would invite us into her house she would always have, you know, appetizers. You'd see if she had a fireplace, the fireplace would be going. And you just immediately felt comfortable. You felt loved. And many times in our family, we were talking about somebody in good memories, positive memories. Aunt Bertha's name will come up because of the warmth that, that she gave as, as a, a person who wanted us to feel like we belonged. And I've spoken to many other people who knew, knew her and express, they expressed the same sentiment. But there was this guy in the Bible who, who epitomized this in such an awesome way. And I'm going to read from Acts chapter 9, verses 26 through 28. This is also in our reading for this week. I can't wait for you to study this and think about it. But um, there, there, there was this guy named Saul. And if you've read the Bible, you're going to know exactly what I'm talking about. But Saul was persecuting the church of God. He was literally trying to find Christians and get them either killed or imprisoned. He didn't care about their families. He didn't care about anything. Well, Saul had an encounter with God. Well, the whole church was terrified of Saul, but he gave his heart to the Lord, and he did a 180. Well, when Saul tried to go to church, the Christians wouldn't let him in the door because they were scared of him. But there was this guy named Barnabas. Barnabas took Saul under his wing and made him feel like he belonged. And Barnabas really was a big part of why Saul, who eventually became the Apostle Paul, uh, the Apostle Paul changed the world for Jesus, all because he had a sense of belonging early on when he first was a Christian. So in Acts 9, verses 26 through 28, it says, When Saul came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he had really changed to become a disciple. But Barnabas, but Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and told Saul's story of his journey, of how he'd seen Jesus, of how the Lord had spoken to him, and how he had preached fearlessly about Jesus in Damascus, and so Saul stayed with them all because of Barnabas. Now, Barnabas's name, the Bible tells us, that actually wasn't his name. His name was Joseph. And the apostles gave him the name Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. God wants us to feel like we belong. And there's those of us in our small church who have 
the gift of making people feel cared for and feel warm and accepted, praise God, this might be resonating with you. And if it is, you need to fan into flame the gift that God has put in your heart. Here's number three, to love God and to share God's love, to love God and to share God's love. Now we call this worship or closeness to God. You might find yourself just in the middle of the day while you're washing the dishes or at work typing on your computer or who knows, maybe in the middle of the night and you just start bursting forth with praise to the Lord Jesus Christ. You love to pray. In fact, you find prayer enjoyable so much so that you you lose track of time when you're talking to God because you love his presence. You love talking to him. You love hearing from him. You can't wait for worship time at church or altar time at church when we come together and we seek God with all of our heart. You talk to God and you hear from God. You're very sensitive to the Holy Spirit and sense his presence and his closeness. You know that where the Holy Spirit of the, there is, there's freedom. You love God with all your heart and find different ways of expressing your love to Jesus. Some key words for you would be God's presence, worship, prayer, love, power, freedom, all those things that comes with a true worshiper of God. And to me, <laughs> in our church, Sister Shelley epitomizes this. She's a worshiper. She is someone who has the ear of God. I had someone outside of our church approach me and speak to how Shelley had prayed for, I believe it was their daughter, and the cancer that that daughter had had gone into remission as a result of Shelley's prayer. She has the ear of God. She's a worshiper. The Bible says that God is looking for worshipers. He's actively searching for worshipers, those who worship him in spirit and in truth. But to me, in the Bible, the absolute best worshiper is mentioned in only two or three verses in Genesis. Excellent example of what a worshiper looks like and what a worshiper does. And it's this guy named Enoch. He came from uh, his father, Methuselah. This is in Genesis 5, verses 22 through 24. And it says of, of Enoch that Enoch walked faithfully with God 300 years. And I take that very literally. I believe he literally walked around with God. Everywhere he went, God was with him because he was conscience, conscious of God's presence. He talked to God. He, listens, he listened to God. It says, altogether, Enoch lived a total of 365 years. He walked faithfully with God. Then he was no more because God took him. What does God do with worshipers? He takes them. <laughs> he protects them. Enoch was one of the few human beings that never tasted death. And one pastor that my dad is, has given uh, as an example was preaching about Enoch. And, and he said every day Enoch and God would take walks and, and they would get farther and farther and farther from Enoch's house. And one day God said, you know what, Enoch? We're closer to my house than your house. Let's just go home. <laughs> Isn't that awesome? God is looking for worshipers. And I look at this, 
Enoch walked with God 300 years, but he lived 365 years, which means for 65 years, Enoch did not walk with God. So if you look at yourself and you say, Steve, I'm, I'm already up in my 50s, 60s, 80s, 40s, whatever you are, it's too late for me. No, it's not. You can start being a worshiper today, and God can, can do just amazing things in and through you. But here's, what are we on? I think the, the fourth one, and it's this. It's to receive God's love and to show that same love to people to serve in tangible ways. In other words, in ways that can be felt and remembered. All right. Every time you serve somebody, it creates a memory in their mind that they will never forget. So for you, love isn't love unless it's shown. You don't really like people that give love, love lip service. You like people that give <laughs> love, you know, a, 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 a evidence and, and showing it. You like to feed the hungry. You like to meet a need. You like to help the hurting. You like to lift up the less fortunate. Action is required for love to be considered genuine by you. Serving is your greatest joy. It's your greatest pleasure. You do it for free. You would do it on the weekends. You do it in the evenings. You love to serve. And you really don't care if people notice or not because you're doing it out of your heart. Your fulfillment comes not from being noticed, but from, from the very act of relieving somebody's misery and helping someone. You serve because you love. And some key words here are obviously serve, uh, to relieve suffering, to help, and to work. Servers are hard workers. And no one epitomizes this in our church more. And I've got a couple of names here, but Brother Jimmy. I mean, my goodness, if you knew all that Brother Jimmy did, you would be completely shocked. He's helped people that now have passed on. And, and Brother Jimmy will probably never be thanked by some of those folks. He helps people who will never be able to repay him. <laughs> And he's written a, a chapter in my book by watching his example. I look at Jesse, unbelievable servant of God and servant of people. I don't know that Jesse's ever told someone no. <laughs> he serves, he serves, he serves. And then I think of Miwa and what she's doing with the, uh, with the autism community here in El Paso. Just serving, desiring to help people. But there's an example of someone in the Bible, who had really only one verse mentioned of her personally. Now, there's her backstory is expressed in greater detail, but what she did is really limited to one or two verses in Acts 9, verse 36. And it, it mentions this lady named Tabitha, and uh, her Greek name was Dorcas, which I'm glad her name wasn't that in English because she would have been made fun of, but... Her name was Tabitha, and she was always, this was her description, she was always doing good and helping the poor. Unbelievable. And actually, the story about her is that she passed away. And the apostle Peter came to town, and the widows there were showing Peter all that she did. She made robes and clothes for the poor, 
The Bible is very specific about that. And they were mourning her death. And amazingly, Peter prayed for her, and she was brought back to life again. But her legacy was one of showing love to people. Absolutely amazing. But the last one that we'll cover today, the fifth purpose is, and, and all of these are a means of how we're going to see a thousand people's lives change through service, through discipleship, through fellowship. Each and every one of these purposes gives us the springboard, gives us the opportunity to be able to change somebody's life through the power of God. But the last one is this, to be rescued and to rescue the helpless. That is to evangelize the lost world, to rescue people who, are, who, who have no hope. They may not even be looking to be rescued, and you happen upon their situation. Your, your lives intersect, and all of a sudden you have the opportunity to rescue them from where they're at. Now, if this is you, you're the type of person that's going to say, always be saying, Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the answer. You're willing to tell anybody about Jesus, even if you're shy. There's even shy people. In fact, many shy people come alive when it's time to tell people about Jesus. Your goal is to lead people to a new life in Jesus. Life is an adventure for you, and leading people to salvation is the final frontier. You see yourself as a missionary, as an evangelist. Some people, like you, are more comfortable doing this one-on-one. -one. Others are perfectly okay with getting up in front of loads of people and telling them about Jesus. Either way, their goal is the same. The key words to you are salvation, witness, born again, preach. All right? And I can tell you what, my dad serves as an amazing example of this. He left America <laughs> back in the 50s and 60s, and he went to Spain, a fascist state who had been aligned with Hitler, and started a church and got a hundred people into that church in a matter of a few months, had the secret police come and shut the church down, and then started it back up again, and went beyond that in other cities in Spain, starting church after church. He worked in the, he and my mom worked in the Bible school in northern Mexico. They're helping other preachers start churches, using all of their evangelistic and missionary work as their experience to teach new leaders. New leaders to be evangelistic. Absolutely amazing. And in the Bible, Philip in Acts 8 serves as really one of the most compelling examples of someone who was a missionary, who was an evangelist. In verse 4 of Acts 8, there is a, a, a dispersion of Jews from Jerusalem because of the per persecution, excuse me, a dispersion of Christians from Jerusalem because of persecution they suffered. And they started spreading out all over Israel and even beyond the, the, the Jewish borders. And Philip was one of these people. He went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. You see that? He proclaimed Jesus. 
And that's what evangelists do. When crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they paid close attention to what he said. Let me tell you what, if you start telling people about Jesus, they will pay attention to you. With shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed, and there was great joy in that city. That's what evangelists do. They break great joy, incredible light, new life to places where there's only darkness. Further down in that, in that chapter, we see that Philip is, is told by the angel of the Lord, go south to the road, the desert road, that goes down to Jerusalem to Gaza. Now, this is what happens to evangelists. This is what happens to people who make themselves available to God. The Holy Spirit starts leading them in very concrete ways. Go over there and talk to that person. <laughs> hey, stop right here and tell that person that Jesus loves them. All right? You start experiencing the power and the voice of God in your life when you have a desire to see lost souls saved. So he starts out on his way. He's, he's met with an Ethiopian, an important official in charge of the treasury of, of this, the queen of Ethiopia. And if you look at any bit of history, Ethiopia was hugely evangelized and to this day is impacted by the evangelism of the early church. And much of it, I believe, had to do with this very interaction right here. This official was touched by Philip. He'd gone, this official had gone to Jerusalem to worship for some odd reason. He was a foreigner. And on his way home, he was sitting on his chariot reading from the book of Isaiah, the prophet. And the Spirit told Philip, go up to that chariot and stay near it. <laughs> You're going to start experiencing the leading of the Holy Spirit. And you might have some white knuckles and sweaty palms when this happens. But follow the leading of the Holy Spirit because people's hearts are open whenever that happens. Philip has this interaction uh, with, with the, this Ethiopian, and uh, he's asked to interpret uh, what, this, what this scripture does, or what the scripture says and means. And in verse 35, then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. And this is the last thing I'll leave you with. An evangelist will always take the conversation, wherever the conversation starts out, and end up with Jesus somehow, some way. And I, I, I've seen this happen to myself. I'm talking about football to somebody, and we end up talking about Jesus. We're talking about work, and we end up talking about Jesus. We talk, maybe we're talking about going to dinner or lunch, and we end up talking about Jesus. All conversations for an evangelist end up with Jesus in some form or fashion. So I want to ask you, do some soul searching right now. And uh, what is your heart drawn most to of these five purposes? And, and what do you sense God's unique destiny is for your life? You know, it is true that as you get closer to God, all five of these purposes can blossom and should blossom in your life. But it is also true that one or two of these purposes tends to be more dominant in your life so that we can work together and rely on each other's strengths. We can.